Okay, we are recording. Okay, hello everyone. Welcome to the last See Witch Books author talk of the summer. We might have to take a little hiatus because in our household, between the three of us, we have nine remote courses that are being taught. So, um, you know, that's why we were really enjoying it in summer. For those of you who are new, um, See Witch Books is a virtual bookstore that we're really trying to um, use during COVID to encourage connections, to keep author talks going, to give us new books, and just to kind of like really enjoy, um, still enjoy reading with each other and still enjoy those communities. Um, for those of you who are here with us live, um, I highly encourage you to use the chat function. It's fun, and that way you don't have to worry about forgetting a question or a comment. It goes in there. We moderate it. You are sure to get it asked. And for those of you who are listening later, keep in mind, if you show up live, you get to actually ask a question. Um, so I'm going to introduce our author for today, who is Sarah Hosey. Uh, Sarah Hosey is the author of the feminist young adult novel, Iphigenia Murphy, and that's what she'll be discussing today, as well as a critical study of pop culture, Home is Where the Hurt Is, Media Depictions of Wives and Mothers. Her short story, Revenge of the Nerds, is now available in the inaugural issue of Casino Literary Magazine, and her novella, Great Expectations, is forthcoming from Running Wild Press. If you look carefully at Sarah's author photo, you might notice a poppy seed in her teeth, Intentional or not, she stays on message. Well, I never would have noticed that had you not pointed it out. Um, without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to my mom, Laurel Brett, who is going to moderate today. Well, I think the first thing we can do is ask Sarah to read. I have a trillion questions, but I think everybody would enjoy hearing her read from her novel first. Unless you'd rather read from the story. It's all oh, you. Well, the first thing I wanted to do is to say thank you. First of all, I love your endeavor. I love the Sea Witch Project. I love the Brett family. I love your family dynamic and the intellectual community you've created in your home. So I appreciate the invite and I appreciate the opportunity to spend some time with, with everybody here, but my special thanks to my brilliant friends. Um, I'll just read for a couple minutes. I just have a, a little tiny part I'm gonna read. Um, and it's uh, in the middle of the book, excuse me where uh, a little background is that uh, the protagonist, Iffy, has run away from an abusive household and she set up her life in Forest Park, Queens. And uh, during her stay in the park, at first she's initially kind of on her own and she's forging a life for herself and she's doing a little bit of healing. She's also looking for her mother, whom she believes is living also in the park. But that's something she's really playing, she's keeping very close to her heart because I think um, you'll have to read the book to find out, but I think that I tried to suggest in the beginning that the idea that her mother in the park was a little bit idealistic, right? That it seemed a little far-fetched, but she's still kind of clinging to this as, a, as some form of hope. Um, while she's living in the park, she winds up meeting uh, another runaway who's a little bit older than her, Corinne, who's running from an abusive boyfriend, and the two of them kind of make a little home together and become really each other's support. Um, uh, throughout the novel. And in this scene, um, they've just returned from Corinne's apartment. They, they went to Corinne's apartment to retrieve some of her stuff, hoping that her boyfriend wouldn't discover them, but he does. And they make another kind of dramatic escape from him. Um, and they're kind of regrouping in the, in the park after this. Um, and Iffy, as a result, has a black eye from where she's slapped across the face. So Corinne says, I'm really so sorry. 
please stop saying that. It's not a big deal. It's a little bit of a big deal. I mean, sure, whatever, but I'm not upset. You're not? No, you look upset. I paused, thought, he's a jerk. You were right about that. He's pretty scary. Corinne stopped pacing and nodded, yeah. But I don't know, I guess it was kind of exciting. Corinne smiled widely. It was, wasn't it? I laughed a little. You were amazing, she went on. Shoot, you're great in a pinch, aren't you? You're really a patron saint of the sneak attack. I'm so glad you're on my side. I've been going over it again and again in my mind, how the skateboard felt in my hand, the noise he made when I made contact, my heart pounding in my ears as we ran. The whole thing had been terrifying, but also intense in an almost pleasurable way. And the best part was having someone who was there, someone to talk about it with. I just wish I had seen his face. Corinne hooted. He looked like his eyes were gonna pop right out of his head. She did an impression, falling to the ground. We laughed. It was a low blow, literally. Corinne smirked, but cycled back into concern mode. Your eye, she began. I'm fine, I groaned. Should we go get some ice or something? Please, I took a swig of water. She made a face, lit a cigarette. Oh, iffy. Angel, the dog who had been sniffing around, returned, panting, and put her head in my lap. She looked at me with those sweet, pretty eyes. Hey, Angel, I said, stroking her neck. You're hot, I know. Iffy, Corinne started. I just want to say, you're like my best friend. You know that? I smiled at her. I mean it when I say I'm glad you're on my side. You are so fly. Cut it out. I just, you know, she looked down and then back at me. I appreciate it is all I'm saying. You know, you're just taking me for who I am and being my bud, but also, you know, going to bat for me. Of course, I said. You know, I love you, right? She said. I kind of laughed and looked at the ground. Me too. She had to make a joke, of course, a no funny business now joke before she embraced me. I thought about how strange it was to be touched. I almost even enjoyed the hug. Most of the time I shrank back when somebody tried to touch me and I had first at, at, to at first with Corinne, but I'd got, gotten used to it. She was always hugging and patting and reaching and grabbing. She was a toucher, all right. And while I found it surprising and a little embarrassing at first, I almost started to like it, to consider using it myself, this communication through hands. Because it was different when Corinne touched me. It was always playful or kind or affectionate. It was never nasty or pissed off. She never touched me like they used to touch me, the way you touch something that is in your way, something that irritates you, that is large and heavy, but also useless, disposable, disgusting. When she let me go, she turned me by my shoulders to face her. You know you can talk about it if you want. I played dumb, what? Anything? I thought for a moment. I looked at the ground. I guess there is something, I mumbled. Corinne waited. You know I told you about how my mom left? She nodded. I think she might be here, like sort of, I'm sort of looking for her. Corinne considered. Living here in the park? She clarified. I nodded. Holy shit, Iffy. We have to find her. So that's the end of that section. Um, and I think that one of the things that I value about that section or about that relationship is that it it's about the ways in which it's through other people often that we can do our best healing and our best surviving and that through that connection with others, which really speaks to also the project of Sea Witch Books in the sense that kind of trying to maintain these connections in times uh, when we often feel really isolated and hopeless. I was very struck when you read this time, first of all, you read beautifully, but I was very struck by the one phrase, uh, communication through hands mm -hmm. and very, quasi-mystical almost in, in a very touching way. And I think that that's kind of the theme of so much 
of your writing and the way people are growing right now is the ways that we can communicate in unconventional ways or ways we're not used to, or because of the abuse, the hands were something negative for iffy, but now they're not because it's a different person's hands, hands used a different way. And I think that's essential to the novel. So I had so many places I wanted to start, but I decided to start here and go back to ninth grade and say, I've never been able to use this phrase before. Though in reading Great Expectations, when we read Dickens, I remember my ninth grade English teacher who was incredibly brilliant and it, it kind of insisted that we all be against the war in Vietnam. And this was in like 1965. So it was like very early in the process, this is Stein. She used the phrase, the physiognomy of names that Dickens used. That he always names his characters in a way that tells you something about them. So in thinking about, I think so much of your story is told in Iphigenia's name and it attracts me to the book so much. The incongruity of the Greek mythical name and then the very common Irish surname. And then I noticed in the story too, our hero is Dignity. And similar thing, that the name stands in for telling some of the story about the person. And I wondered if you could talk about how you came up with the name Iphigenia Murphy, why that particular myth, and were you on purpose creating something almost oxymoronic in her name? You know, you're the only one who has picked up on that and you're 100% um, thank you for getting it because um, I wanted to capture the, con the contrast between her mother and her father. So her mother gives her this really significant name and uh, there's, a, there's a passage and I'll talk a little bit about the myth too, but where her mother discusses where the name comes from. Um, and her father's last name is Murphy, right? And her father is Tommy Murphy. He's just this kind of Queens Irish American dude um, who, I, you know, I could, I have a whole backstory for both of her parents, but I would, I would characterize as him as someone who is like, didn't set out to kind of be a bad person, um, was not equipped when he became a father at a young age to uh, deal with a mentally ill spouse, uh, to deal with a spouse who struggled with substance abuse, and then was not equipped to have a kind of tween or teenage daughter um, at all, <laughs> um, it, kind of in, in any respect. So, uh, but, but he's still part of who she is, unfortunately. You know, he's still part of her identity, and that is part of who she is, as is her mother. And uh, the mother part, which is also interesting, I mean, I think it really kind of works, the name Iphigenia, because it's um, it's so unfamiliar and it's even unfamiliar to Iffy herself. Do you know I mean, she she really has to learn how to grow into her name and to grow into this legacy before she can kind of do the work that she needs to do to heal. So um, so you caught on to, the, to something really important with that contrast between Iphigenia and Murphy, the kind of uh, you know exotic and the banal. But also it's interesting just kind of as a backstory that um, I, I wonder if it was not a great title. Like the publisher initially didn't like it and wanted me to change it. I had to propose about 10 other ones that they all sucked. But, you know, I did propose a bunch of other ones, right? Because they said people don't want to buy a book that they don't know how to pronounce. And they're probably right about that. Um, and I think that it's funny, even close friends will say to me, like, I really liked um, 
your book. You know, like they just, they just don't even try to pronounce it because it's just like too difficult. And I, so I appreciate from like a business angle that maybe that wasn't the wisest choice. I mean, obviously they came around and they said, okay, you can call it this. Um, but I think that from an artistic angle or creative angle, I actually think it really works because I think one of the messages of the book and one of the points I'd like to get to at the end is that she learns to inhabit this name and to demand that others learn it. So, you know, there's an early scene where I think a, a teacher mispronounces her, or she says all, none of her teachers ever knew how to pronounce her name. Um, and I think that I have a couple friends with names that are difficult or maybe unfamiliar to a lot of Western folks. Um, and it's, or I don't know, Laurel, if you have this experience on the first day of class, I always ask my students to learn each other's names and then there'll be a name that maybe is a little bit unusual. And there'll always be a kid or two who says, I don't know what that one is, right? It's usually a white person saying this about a name of someone of color, right? And that's unacceptable. And I try, I try, to, I try to head that off before we even begin, but some people insist on making sure that everybody knows that they're not gonna learn, they're not gonna bother to learn how to pronounce that name. That doesn't happen in my classrooms because I'm always made them play this name game where we went around the room and they had to remember the names of everyone sitting in the circle before them. And they're so focused on remembering the names that they forget to be obnoxious. They, they, they just totally, totally, totally forget it. And, and at the end, I have to say all of them. So they know that I'm the one who's going to be put on the hot seat the most. I do that too. I do that too, where I have to say all of them as well. But it just, it, it's an interesting, uh, I'm sure I'm not unfamiliar. Well, it would make me buy your book. So I know that I'm not your target audience, but... But it would make me buy your book just seeing that from the minute I read that the book was coming out, my excitement level about a YA novel tripled because of the name, because of the energy of the oxymoron. It appealed to me so much. It's hard for us to remember that, that college professors with PhDs in English aren't our target audience. You know, like, like it, but were you also thinking about the way in the Iphigenia myth, the daughter is sacrificed, like the sacrifice of daughters? Exactly. Right. Well, I'm, you know, I want to put a pin in that because I want to talk about that. But I also felt, and I might be wrong, but just from the young people that I know and that I've talked to and remembering myself as a, as a younger reader, I think there's also something cool about exclusivity. And I think that there's something cool about having the book that you know how it's pronounced because you, you read the book. But maybe not other people, you know what I mean? Like, I feel like um, there's a, a couple of books, for example, I'm thinking of like A Clockwork Orange, which is something, you know, it's a problematic book. But when I've taught it, my students have really gotten into it. And I think that one of the reasons they like it so much is that it's not for everybody. That, you know, not everybody can make it through the first 50 pages of that book. Once you make it, you feel like a sense of ownership over this language. And I was kind of hoping to go for something similar that, you know, that readers who, picked it up despite its kind of alienating name, might find themselves really embracing it and kind of taking some ownership of it. It's really interesting because I had the opposite reaction to calling my book The Schrodinger Girl. I never thought of calling it anything else and nobody ever asked me to call it anything else. Mm -hmm. And there, I don't want to say names, but surprising people in our department said Schrodinger, you know, couldn't say it. And I'm like, this is a prominent 20th century scientist, you know, like, but my publishing company didn't have that feeling. So it's really, it's just whoever is the person sitting in that editorial position, right? 
Um, well, the myth, I want to, and I want to talk about the myth of Daphne as well, of course. But the myth, of, the, the story of Iphigenia, where I encountered it. Now, there's, there's Iphigenia at Alice, which is a different play, but I was thinking of Oristia, or Aeschylus as the Oristia, which is a, a three-part play in which um, the very first play, Agamemnon, opens uh, with the chorus telling the story of Agamemnon and how he has been fighting in Troy and how uh, he's stranded. He's, he's trying to get home. He, the Trojan War is over and he wants to get home, but the, the wind, uh, winds won't blow. And so he uh, sacrifices his daughter, Iphigenia, in order to make the winds blow. Now, there's a couple different versions. There's another version in which she's married off or she's promised off in marriage. But uh, the version that I first encountered, she, she it's she's sacrificed. And it's a side note. It's just kind of like a, it happens off stage. It's just kind of like, oh, this is something that happens before the real action. So Agamemnon gets home and he arrives home and his wife Clytemnestra is waiting for him. Now she's been cheating on him. She has her own agenda. But when she hears that uh, he's, he's murdered their daughter, like she is naturally, uh, I mean, I'm reading into this because it's not in the script, but I would imagine she's very pissed off. And she assassinates him not long after that. So I, my interpretation of that is that she's avenging her, her daughter's death. And so with this book, um, what I tried to do was to suggest that if his mom had read uh, the Oristia and was so taken with this name and taken with this story herself that that's what she decided to name her daughter. Um, and so then I also wanted it to play out in the book itself that Iphigenia feel like this is a book about longing for the mother and it's a book about longing for your mother to protect you and avenge you and take care of you. And I think that um, Lisa and I have actually talked about this quite a bit. I think that, you know, there are probably very few of us, regardless of the type of parenting we receive from our mothers who, who can't kind of identify with that on a certain level The kind of, I don't know that a mother's love is ever enough. Even the best mom in the world probably leaves well, Mine was enough. No, I'm only kidding. I'm totally kidding. <laughs> my daughter is there. My son is there to go. We can save it. But, um, is there a longing and we have to deliver them into the world we deliver them out of ourselves into the world and we can't protect them from the world no matter who we are right mm -hmm. and i would say yeah. that revenge of the nerds actually takes on a similar yes it did, did yeah. i, I want to say that mia said many people teach it that way now about her of clytemnestra avenging and then david said absolutely I should tell you that David um, was once upon a time at Williams, a classics major, and he actually wrote music for the Oristia oh. as one of his projects. So he has composed music for the Oristia. So you have a whole group of people who are very aware of the Oristia. Actually, just of, just of Agamemnon. I only did it for the first play. Okay. The best one. I like the Furies too, but... Uh, oh, but for sure. My favorite is Agamemnon because the... The language is the most regal with the beacons and the like, like, so almost exotic, even though Greece is not an exotic culture to us, Aeschylus manages to give it that sense of something so heightened. But I wanted to, jumping off on what you're talking about, I wanted to say, I wonder if the park that Epigenia is in, is it a real park or is it a mythic park? Because I went back and forth in my mind reading the novel, whether it was a real landscape or a mythic landscape. Well, I, I mean, I want to have it both ways, Laurel, right? I think- well, you said, right? 
It's a real physical park, and there's a map in the beginning of the book that approximates the real forest park, even you know down to where Strack Pond is located. And that was a park that I lived near and spent a lot of time in. So I feel like that geography is very familiar to me. Um, However, I would say that it's interesting if you ask me to characterize the book now. Now, you know, it was written years ago, and and I've been, you know, talking about it a lot in the last few months and stuff. But when I look at it again, I realize how much of it is a uh, an homage to like Watership Down, which was like my favorite childhood book, but is about like a ragtag group of like misfits who don't are not valued, right? I don't know if you guys anybody anybody worship down fans. Um, thank you. Uh, you know, Fiverr is, uh, is, is considered a big weirdo and his skills are not valued by his community. And so these rabbits set off in search of like a, just a better life for themselves where even though they're not the most macho rabbits, they can, um, be, be valued. Right. And, um, that appealed to me so much as a young person. And I'm often drawn to those kind of adventure stories. And I think that obviously if a Murphy is quite different than Watership Down, I think that that heart is there of the kind of journey into the unknown by the individual who, who, is, who actually rejects the cultural assessment of her as disposable or uh, not valuable and, and goes and tries to make a, a better world for herself. So there seems to be, you, you seem to wear so many hats, like you are a mom, a wife, a professor, um, a scholar, a creative writer, and I've also seen you as an administrator, you know, heading women's studies. That's a lot of different things, but I would want to say that the same project seems to run through all of them. So I wondered if you might want to talk about how your theoretical, your, your more academic writing informs your fiction and maybe vice versa. Because it doesn't seem to be that demarcated and that the themes recur. The theme of violence right below the surface of ordinary life, right? Absolutely. Well, I think um, it's no accident that my academic book is titled Home is Where the Hurt Is. I'm very interested in the domestic space, which I mean, this is basically my book flap for my academic book, but it's like, you know, for 50 years, there was a propaganda campaign telling women that the safest place was in the home, when really for many women, the, the most dangerous place was the home. And, and that happens in a spectrum of ways, whether it's um, domestic violence or sexual abuse, but also just the, the chemicals that we use to, to maintain the middle class home, as well as kind of the claustrophobia of new motherhood. Like there are all of these perilous places within the home that are often, I, I feel until recently, our popular culture were not was not adequately depicting. So in Home is Where the Hurt is, so the academic book looks at kind of uh, recent media, like I kind of talk about some of the romantic depictions of the home, but also talk about more recent media that actually is feminist and that is taking on uh, these, uh, taking on the domestic in interesting ways and, and problematizing some of our myths about it. And as you point out, similarly with Iphigenia Murphy, I think, you know, we have a 15 year old living in a park because it's safer than living at home. And I think that that really gets at the heart of kind of the, the, the conflict of the novel, right? Um, so yes, I see that as, uh, as, as um, they're very much speaking to each other. And as I was writing Iphigenia Murphy, and I was very 
strategic, honestly. And I think this is why I feel like I can call it a feminist young adult novel is that I, I absolutely had points I wanted to make, which maybe takes away from its artistic value, but well, I don't think it does. And to have trans, you know, positive trans representation, which I, I'm not even sure I did quite right. Like I might do it differently now, but positive trans representation, a representation of uh, pro-choice, um, I don't, you know, I just want to say uh, just a pro-choice re representation, a representation of uh, the fact that poverty disproportionately affects women and children, of the ways in which especially historically women with mental illness uh, were discarded, you know. So, uh, so there were, there were issues that I wanted to dramatize. And honestly, I think if I, if I could, I would even use it like this book in a women's studies class to, to start talking about trafficking is in there, to start talking about some of the issues that I think um, that are underrepresented, maybe not so much now, but when I, when I started writing the book, I really felt that there was a lack in terms of some of the representations I was seeing in YA. But I do think that the landscape has changed significantly even just in the past couple of years. I wanna backtrack a little bit to something that you said at the beginning of this answer. And that is the paradox of the home being the least safe place for women. And I, I think you said many women, I think it's kind of true across the board. Like, like more women are murdered by domestic partners than by strangers. So you know, like just statistically, the home is the least safe place, even though we feel safe, perhaps we're lulled into a feeling of safety. We're taught to want to create these nuclear families in these separated homes where there's not any real community. But what strikes me why I think your book is so timely now is that I think these scissors and schisms are really heightened by COVID because we're forced to stay in the home. Whereas we might have spent 10 hours a day away from family members. Now people are sequenced, you know, sequestered together as a safe place from a pathogen, but are the people they're sequestering with always totally safe for them? I think that we're seeing, I've seen a couple of articles discussing exactly what you're talking about. And I think we won't know the fallout for years. I think that we'll be hearing stories for a really long time after hope if this ever ends um and i also think you know i've i have several friends who it's just um i'm kind of going rogue a little bit here but just because of their life situations or various things that are happening really are dealing with kind of exactly what you're talking about but in this very crystallized form so yeah i have a friend who who is in an abusive relationship and this is not a great time for her. I have another friend and we're casual friends, but it's, it's, she's been very frank about it. She has um, OCD and she really struggles because her default is nobody's allowed to go out. And now the rest of the world is saying that she's been right. <laughs> and she, she at the one hand is like, she's just really struggling with it because this is exacerbating all of the stuff that she's been working so hard to get under control for for decades right and um and with agoraphobia now mm -hmm. suddenly are having that i i was almost grateful for having a bunch of doctor's appointments that i did go to early on because they said well i'm not going to die of uterine cancer because i'm afraid of covid and it turns out i was fine but i had to have a series of tests and i found that i wasn't scared to be out which was good that i wasn't having anxiety about it even though i am my children will tell you annoyingly strict about COVID rules because I am 69 and I have horrible asthma and have 
have had so many situations where I couldn't breathe that it's very real to me. It's not a descriptor. It's like I have flashbacks every time I read a description of someone dying of COVID. Um, but yeah, it's very challenging in those ways. Where are we safe? How do we keep ourselves safe? And doesn't that go back to Iphigenia thinking that she has gone to be married to Achilles, to her father, and instead she's being sent to her death? So she feels not only is she going to be safe, but she is going to be celebrated and elevated. And instead, she's going to be murdered. It's, it's all of this ambiguity about is there really a way for women can be, to be safe in our society? Maybe Mia could talk about this, that she and I have been embroiled in, in a Twitter stream where a guy was mean to her. So I came on and I called him out. And then he started fighting with me. And then everybody on her stream were all younger people. So they wanted her to be more, not wanted her to, but saying, I would have had to be more protective of my mom. It would have been so uncomfortable for people to say things, mean things to my mom. Whereas I felt, you know, I felt after teaching community college, like Twitter's, you know, like, like it's nothing. But can women ever be safe in a society that hates them? Yeah, I mean, I, uh, this is a lot of work that I do. And actually, my dissertation has a chapter on how men who killed women in the 19th century just like completely got off. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm hoping that that'll be my second project. But it's a lot of the advocacy I do now as well. And what's so interesting to me is, yeah, about those reactions to be protective of you, because it's not that I'm not protective of you. I am sometimes. It's just that sticking like standing up to men that way is so much about who we are. It would never occur to me for us not to do that or for me to get in the way of you doing it or for me to be angrier that he was saying it to you than someone else. Like, of course, I'm like, capable. Right, and like I'm angry men act that way. I'm not specifically angry that a man's acting that way to you. I mean, I, I am a little, but, but that's not really the problem. The problem is that we're so un unsafe and that, men act that way. Mm -hmm. How dare you speak in public? Right, exactly. I just tweeted, like, it was kind of a joke because, like, I'm, I was bored, but, like, I literally, I've been getting a lot of, like, very odd sexual harassment this week. I mean, I get a lot of sexual harassment online normally, but this week's just been a little extra. And I made a joke. I was like, oh, I probably need, like, an official Twitter boyfriend because then they wouldn't sexually harass me so much because then I'd belong to, like, a different guy. And, um... I just, yeah, like that's, that's what it is. Yeah, it's how dare you speak in public, it's, it's everything and yeah. That's funny Mia, because all my sexual harassment's on Instagram. None of it's on Twitter, but it's constant on Instagram. So Sarah, I noticed that um, the story and the book end very differently. Was mm -hmm. it important for you that the end of the novel have a redemptive element? Yes. Absolutely. I mean, I do, as I suggested earlier with my Watership Down illusion, like, I think that for the novel, I, I wanted a hopeful, optimistic message about the possibilities of community and finding your people and, um, and a mother love. And, um, and I, yeah, I, I you know, I, I, even I remember talking about this with an editor earlier, like, an editor suggested she said well anthony's kind of an idealist I, I ideal guy the love interest and i said yeah, he is i said but 
if he deserves an ideal guy. Now, in my head, you know, like I know more about Anthony and he's not quite as perfect as maybe he is on the page, but um, I do think that, you know, I, I wanted to tell a story about a, a girl who was a survivor who, who you know, had a happy ending in, in multiple respects. Um, so yes, and I think for this short story, which is clearly not YA, um, I don't know that it's necessarily a sad ending. Not sad, but doesn't have the uplifting. It's not uplifting. No. In the way the end of the novel is. Yeah. No, it's, so the, yeah, the short story is, is, like I said earlier, I mean, I'm just being really frank. Like I think with, with the, with the novel, I had an agenda, you know, I, there were, there were things that I wanted to, to get done and to put out into the world and to be, I wanted to be a part, you know, as I suggested, I have a lot of problems with a lot of pop culture and I, and I wanted to put something into the popular culture that I thought uh, kind of answered some of my own objections, if that makes sense, um, you know? I have been talking to my friend, John, who's here today, um, and, and we share work a lot. He's amazing support system. And I share with my kids, of course. Um, I always want to put something magical or beautiful out as part of my project. Like, I'm glad you said the Fibonacci conspiracy is funny because the last thing I would have wanted to do was write a book about how a woman was victimized with, with no uplift, no humor. Like I, I exaggerated it so much that it's like a satire because I always want to take away from anything I read something that's going to uplift me because there's so much alienation already. So, so much idea of what good writing is, is to reflect that alienation. And John said it was a phrase because he said, no, it's actually adding to it. And that's not what I ever want to do. So I appreciated the mythical elements of the park, kind of almost like, like the green world in Shakespeare, not that it's perfect, but a place away from what's happening to all these other characters, including Corinne in their, their home, home environments. And just that that could exist and about idealized boyfriends, maybe I am broaching privacy too much, but you have confided that you have a husband you really love and respect. So you actually are in a relationship that, that doesn't have abuse as its, as its bedrock. So it is possible. That was hard earned for sure. And I think, um, you know, I, I didn't always have the best partner in the world. And I think that when I finally found him, it, I appreciate him so much because I know that he's pretty rare. So yeah, I got, I got my uh, ideal guy too. What drew you to YA? Pardon? What drew you to YA as a genre? Um, that's an interesting question. I, I think honestly, I do, I read quite a bit of YA, so I appreciate it generally speaking. But I think that when the characters started coming to me and when the plot started coming to me, I, I envisioned it as young adult because of the age group, right? Like, you know, a, a novel about a 15 year old, which I think this is kind of an interesting, if you want to have this conversation, I, I don't want to argue that this is literary fiction or should be categorized that way. It's young adult fiction. However, it is interesting to me that coming of age novels about girls are so often characterized as YA Whereas we're very comfortable reading coming of age boy uh, novels, 
and calling them literature, whether that's um, Catcher in the Rye or really any dictionary. Finn. Um, pardon? Huckleberry Finn. Yeah. So, so I do think that, um, you know, that, that it's interesting because I think that this is, this is a debate that could be had. And again, I am not entering it to suggest that I would rather a different category, but to suggest that when I started thinking 15 year old girl, I naturally thought YA. That's kind of where my brain went in terms of, and, and it also fit nicely with what I had perceived as my goals in writing this novel in terms of really, I wanted to write a novel that depicted a girl becoming a strong woman. So a beleaguered, victimized, downtrodden girl becoming a strong woman. And I, and it's, I actually just got a really great email from someone who read it who I didn't know, you know, who's, who really identified and really um, appreciated it. And, and she said what I, what I like to hear, which is, uh, I mean, she's, she's an adult, but she wrote, I wish I had this novel when I was a teenager. And so I, that's even the ideal for me would be that someone who needs this book now uh, or, or in five years or whatever, but someone who needs the book encounters the book at the right time in their life. Do you foresee your sons reading it at any particular age? Yes, but my sons, to my everlasting chagrin, are not super readers. Like I was, when I was in like third grade and fifth grade, like I read all the time. Now the world was different. My family was different, but you know, I, I reading has been one of the biggest delights of my life. You know, the, reading is the joy of my life, one of the joys of my life. Um, for them, not so much. You know, they enjoy reading, but, um, you know, it's not their go-to in the way it was for me, number one. Number two, is there still reading like Dogman, which if you don't know what that is, that's okay. But it's, you know, it's kind of these crappy poop humor uh, books specifically targeted at uh, boys. Um, so I do hope that they'll read my book. And my, my older son has expressed a lot of interest in reading my book, but he is not able to read it to himself and I'm not going to read it to him. So when he's older, it, you know, I'm sure, but you know, and, and Laurel and Mia and David and everybody, like, I don't know if you have this experience, but one of the best things about the house that I grew up in is that we had a lot of books and I would pick up just crazy shit off the shelf and I would read it because it was there. So like, I was like probably in fifth grade when I read the Executioner's song, you know, if it had sex or any hint of sex, you know, in it, then I would devour it. Um, I used to write down the pages of the sex scenes. Oh, that was, you see, so I would memorize them. And all the things my mom would let me see in the movies, she didn't care what I read. And so, yeah, some of the most unlikely books have the best sex scenes. And I would always joke to my classes that, you know, English teachers are the people who really got hooked on sex scenes and books really early. And that's what kept us reading. So definitely, yes. That's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So so I guess my, my bottom line is that I'm going to leave it on the shelf and I hope that someday they pick it up. I have one more question and then I'd like to like give everyone else a chance to ask questions. My last question is, this was your first novel. What would you say to a struggling novelist who wanted to write a novel? What would be your best advice? Who wanted to write it or who had written it and wanted to get it published? Well, that's a whole nother horrible. Why don't you answer both? Well, I will. Okay, I will, Laurel. And I would be interested in hearing your answer to that question as well. For, for someone embarking on writing, I, I would say a couple of things. One is to, um, to not give up when, when it gets a little boring. Because I feel like one of the things that I often do with my projects is I have a great idea um, and, I, and I, I'm so hot for it and I, and I write for like two hours and then 
the next day I, I kind of exhausted that energy and it's no longer as compelling and I discard it. And I think a lot of really, sometimes projects need to be discarded. But I think that my successes have come from times like with Iphigenia Murphy when I said, you know what, I don't feel like doing this right now and I, and I wanna do something else, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna carry this through. I'm gonna write it to the end. If it sucks, it sucks. And it was a good exercise, right? But uh, to, to really stay with it and write it to the end. And once you have it finished, I don't know, Mia, if you feel this way about your dissertation, like this is how I wrote my dissertation, that you just write it and then you can still abandon it after you write it. But now once it's finished, it's a lot harder to abandon, right? So once it's finished, now you're locked into the revision, which again, can be brutal and painful and horrible and make you want to give up. But how can you give up? You've written 200 pages, right? Now, does that sound familiar, Mia, or no? Um, yeah, so I, for me, I, well, so I like the draft I just handed in, which is actually 204 pages, mm -hmm. um, much better than the previous drafts, which had been very, like, just kind of trying to, like, something not quite clicking, you know, like, something, like, it not quite being a dissertation yet. Chachka's, like, running around here. Okay. Um, and this one I don't feel that way about, but for me, something about the dissertation, because it's so much about pleasing a committee and and pleasing them in way, some ways that are somewhat arbitrary. It's not that I want to abandon it. It's that how I do feel, especially with this draft is like, well, if this one's not what they're looking for, I might have to be done, you know, like, and it's not about abandoning a project. And I love my dissertation. Like I, I really love where it's gotten to and I love the subject and I hope it's well written. Um, but but yeah, I'm, I don't know. I think dissertations are like a whole other thing because you can't have the same kind of ownership over them that you can have over other projects. That there's such a sense of like proving yourself to the four specific people who you need to prove yourself to. Um, and it's just, it's about those four people, right? Like it's not about what the rest of the world wants to read. It's not about what you think is the best. It's not about what even would necessarily sell the best. Like I've had some publishers start talking to me about my dissertation. Like none of that matters until these four people like it. Um, so I hope I actually never repeat the feeling that I have with getting 200 pages on a dissertation. Like I hope, you know, any other writing I ever do, any other, you know, thing, it feels very different. I hope so too. Yeah. I would say for me, I wrote my first novel twice and I wrote 364 pages of it and it got through the publishing industry as far as Michael Peach, who's probably the top publishing executive in the United States because he used to be head of Little Brown and he discovered David Foster Wallace, but now he's head of the Hatchet Group, which is eight subsidiary publishing companies, including Little Brown. And he read it, the initial version. And he said, yeah, you're a great writer. These are wonderful characters. No one will ever read this. So just put it away. And that was really his message to me. I then decided, I noticed, you didn't have to go this route, but I noticed that everyone who was getting books published had been to MFA programs. So I said, oh, what the hell? My kids are grown. I'm not in your situation. I'll start the MFA program at Stony Brook. So that's what I did. And I found a mentor. And the class, they hated the work that I'd done. They found that it lulled them. They weren't interested in the way I set it up. 
So I scrapped it and started the same exact book with the same exact themes all over again. The only difference was my initial draft was much more looking at the Daphnis, whereas the final draft is much more looking at the observer. I created an observer to keep track of them and then he started to absorb my attention. And then I kind of realized that I have a very weird brand, which is feminist writing about men, women looking at men, which is not something that's done that much. Women often look at women, but I like to look at men, like what motivates them? Why are they doing what they're doing? I, I discovered that. So um, my mentor, Kaylee Jones, who's just an amazing, amazing woman, um, daughter of James Jones, who wrote From Here to Eternity. So she grew up writing from when she was a year old at the dinner table and knows everything about writing, has an MFA from Columbia and has her own publishing company and has written seven novels and a memoir. And when I was in her class, I wanted to give up. And she said, you can't give up. You have to write this exact book. I won't let you start another one. So I have her voice in my head that whatever book I'm writing, I have to write it. And I kind of have the opposite problem of you is that instead of boring myself, I delight myself. And then, my, and then my challenge is delighting other people and convincing them that the way I see the world is delightful. My brother once said to me, my, you, we've talked about this, I don't get along with my brother, but my brother once said, I'm a leader, you're not. And what he meant, what he meant wasn't even that cool because I think it was sort of true. He said, I'm one step ahead of people, that's a leader. He said, you're 10 steps ahead of people, that's a visionary. And nobody knows what the fuck you're talking about, mm -hmm. which I think has proved to be true. So trusting that there'll be an audience is always my biggest challenge. The writing, never a challenge. Trusting that there'll be anyone interested and in what I'm seeing, the current book that I'm writing is so bizarre. It's about this Ebor which is a Yiddish mythological figure, very rare one, like a Dybbuk, but here to do good, like a ghost who comes back from the Holocaust 40 years later inhabiting a body and has a relationship, not sexual, but relationship with Leonard Cohen and has in Montreal and has to figure out what she's doing here. And the inspiration of it was paired particles that across the universe, particles communicate with each other and we don't know how. Like the math would say it would have to be faster than the speed of light to explain it by quantum theory. So even quantum theory can't explain it. So those are the things that interest me, these very abstract things. And then I try and find concrete objective correlatives, but I don't know if I will, or I don't know if anybody will want to read it or care, or that's my challenge. Like, like my putting my worldview into the world in a way that I will find my sort of like being in that park, that I will find my tribe. Mm -hmm. But you did with the Schrodinger girl. Yeah, I did. So you, you've got to hold on to the, the faith that... I even, I don't know if you know this, but I even got told that there's going to be an audio version. You did tell me, and that's wonderful. And that's David, where is he? David is writing an adapted screenplay. Oh, wonderful. Perfect. David, why don't you come on and talk about that a little, because it's pretty exciting. Um, well, yeah, it is fun, and it's it's a, a very interesting process. But I actually do have something I wanted to say to Sarah, um, which I was waiting until you finished, so I'm going to say that first. Um, I just wanted to comment that um, 
I think it's such a wonderful and interesting and really contemporary move to give your character all the baggage of Iphigenia, but give her a redemptive ending. Um, because there's so much in culture now about redeeming these tragic women mythological figures, whether it's Clytemnestra or Medusa or Ariadne or whomever. Um, well, I just find that really moving. And I think that's really awesome. I loved the way that you talked about the character's heritage that way. Thank you, I appreciate it. And I especially appreciate it since you love the Oristia too. Because, yeah. And Clytemnestra is fascinating. Has anybody tried sure. to... Uh, Who has written about Clytemnestra, about dance in Clytemnestra? Who has? Mia. Didn't yeah, you do I, I have. Um, I, I actually was always really obsessed with Clytemnestra and the, the, it's funny, the Oristia definitely, I think has a lot of meaning for all three of us in this house. And I'm not a classicist the way David is, but um, also I know John has his hand raised, so I'll, I'll speak quickly. Um, but I was always really interested in the Oristia because I was particularly interested in, um, I took a, like a summer course at Brown and it was on classics and, and talking about that. And it was a very young guy who maybe like just had his PhD. And so he really emphasized teaching Agamemnon as Clytemnestra killing him because of Iphigenia, not because he cheated on her. And this was like, I was 16. So you can figure out how many years ago that was. Um, but, and so I think, I think maybe it, it was very new then, but for me, it was the first time I learned it. Mm -hmm. So I never learned about Clytemnestra killing Agamemnon for any reason other than one that felt very legitimate to me. Um, and so like, I, I was very drawn to it because of course I learned that that was not always the interpretation. Um, and so it was actually, it was really interesting. I took a class um, like my senior year at Barnard, I, I took a dance history class because like it's a big deal at Barnard and I just, I hadn't taken one yet. And like, I, I'm a dancer or I was. So, um, and I, what I did was I wrote a paper on Martha Graham's Oristia. And so I had to go and sit in the Lincoln Center library with like a, it wasn't microfilm of course, but it was that kind of experience of like, you know, sitting in a, in a like one of those little, um, Carol, they call it? Carol's, thank you sitting in one of those little carols at the Lincoln Center Library and watching this long um, Martha Graham, not ballet exactly, but ballet. Um, and I guess the, the teacher was so shocked at reading such an academic feminist discussion of the Oristia. Like she, like it was like, a, but yeah, so like I was always very drawn to it because it was so, it, the feminist themes to me were so clear and it was, it, it, I had such a backwards relationship with it that it was so difficult for me to understand how you would see Clytemnestra as the villain. Like, how could you hear that story? Well, and she, is, she, is, she is cheating on him. But and after he killed the daughter. She also wants to take over the kingdom, though. At least, I mean... After. Okay. <laughs> I don't see it. I don't see it. Like, he literally... Like, he... Because it's... Because we're 10 years... Mm. after yeah, you killed your daughter. Yes. So to me, would she have cheated on him if he hadn't done that? Probably not. I think it's and, important to remember that she's also the sister of Helen. Right. So, so she's used to a world in which women do have power. 
because right. Helen was the queen of Sparta, not Menelaus being the king of Sparta. That's, yeah, that's and like, important. And, and she's been ruling mm -hmm. in his absence. And, and, you know, she was like the, yeah, her sister was so beautiful, but like, she was one of the most eligible women, you know, of her generation for Agamemnon to marry her. So, so I don't think it's ridiculous that she would want that power or, or like, I don't see that as villainous, I guess is what I'm saying. Like, that seems very natural to me. And, um, and I love hearing this. This is great. Right. Yeah. And so, and Agamemnon is just like, he's such a gross character. Cause like Menelaus at least does want his wife back, but Agamemnon is, there's, there's no motivation for him other than just, Late well, and he just brought Cassandra back with him, too. So if right. we're talking about cheating, yeah. how many people oh, did he sleep with? Crisis, crisis, the whole thing with Achilles. And then he's brought Cassandra back to be his personal concubine, if we... Right, and exactly, and what he did to Achilles as well, yeah. So, like, so, yeah, I just never even had, like, one moment of, of sadness. I was like, good, get rid of him, you know? Like, it was just, like, there was nothing else. So, so um... And to me, like, avenging Iphigenia was so righteous mm -hmm. in that context. Can you context. say what the teacher, how she responded to your paper? I think you were leading up to that, that she was Oh, so no, just that she was, like, so excited by it, you know, that, like, that I guess, you know, I chose to do that Martha Graham ballet to discuss these things, and I don't know if, like, she didn't even know that history is in as detailed as I did. Not history, but, you know. Or like what, but she just was, it was like, I don't know, I guess people don't usually take the dance history classes and discuss it, but I, she just was like very excited by it. And I remember giving my presentation, <laughs> uh, David wrote, are you suggesting that control of trade routes is not a legitimate reason to kill your daughter and destroy an entire culture? Yeah, I might be suggesting that. Well, and it's not just that he kills her, but there's something about the subterfuge too, you know, like the, that, that yeah, she's dead. You know, like that it's, that he doesn't take her. But Clytemnestra purposely sends her because she thinks that she's going to get married. And so I could imagine Clytemnestra feeling complicit in a way that she wouldn't have if Agamemnon had just like taken Iphigenia. Um, yeah, I don't know. I clearly have a lot of feelings about this story. I love hearing I John. Should we give John a chance? To yes, John had his, his hand raised. <laughs> Over to you, John. Oh, uh, yeah, I'm unmuted. Oh, nice. Hello. Uh, my question is much less uh, learned, so apologies. Um, but for Sarah, I wanted to talk about uh, considerations of audience in the writing revision, because I thought it was interesting, and actually it was touched on by uh, me and Laurel as well, when you talked about the title in terms of the editorial, initial editorial consult. Also, the choice to do YA seems to me also to immediately position the writing towards a particular audience. Um, and then also with Mia talking about her, her audience is four people, you know, God, God help us. And uh, Laurel's audience, um, both having to go up to the top of, having to be that guy at the top of Little Brown or Hachette, but of course not him, it has to be a bunch of people who will read it. And so there's this tension between the audience you write for sort of the perfect audience in your mind, the audience you have to get to professionally just to get the thing out, and then the audience you want or are enjoying the feedback from and all the different stages of that. So just was curious to talk about, you know, audience within the writing. What, did, what were you expecting? How did it impact, if at all? And John, then, also, um, yeah. um, 
at, made a point to me, but he said it to me privately, but I think it's worth making it public. His comment was, um, Jane Eyre wasn't considered YA. When did women's coming of age stories start to be thought of as YA? But of course, my grandma is always Little Women, which was always considered a children's book. It, to me, is incredibly profound. So I wanted to just put that in the mix before Sarah mm -hmm. answers as a little addendum to your question. Thanks. Well, I, you know, what's interesting, and I think that as, as people who want to get, who are writing not just for ourselves, right, but are writing for an audience, that sadly, I think what Laurel's story is showing, and what I've experienced too in various ways, is the gatekeeping that is around this business, right? So that I may write something that I feel is, it would be great for a YA audience, but the agents or publishers or editors might respond, no, no, this isn't what they want. Now, how they know <laughs> what this group wants, you know, I sometimes professionals really do know, right? Um, I think that so much of it is marketing. And I think that, um, you know, we are sadly, and this isn't just about books, this is about movies and fashion, we are told what to want. And for the most part, many of us just go along, you know, like the sheeple that we are, <laughs> um, and and purchase what we're told, you know, is the thing that we need to be reading or watching or wearing or consuming otherwise. So, um, so you know, I'm skeptical of the industry overall, even though I have been successful in it. You know, that even though I've been able to navigate it, and you know, getting published with Blackstone is like winning the lottery to a certain extent, you know, my lucky number came up um, and I was able to get this book into the hands of folks that, you know, don't know me, which I think is, you know, kind of what it's about, right? Is that I could inflict this on Lisa or, you know, various people and ask them to read it. But, you know, the, the goal is to have a bigger reach with your work. Um, and, you know, Laurel, you also, you know, you've, you, you, The Schrodinger Girl is an amazing novel and it's reached a lot of people that don't know you, you know, both through yeah. kind of your publisher, but also for those of you who don't know, I think everybody knows, but you know, Laurel had a beautiful write-up in the New York Times. Like, I don't know that that is, you can estimate or you can really assess how, how powerful that is, right? The reach of the New York Times. I do want to have a little addendum to what you said, because I think it's relevant to the idea of gatekeeping. Uh, two years ago, Paul Auster published a book that was absolutely the structure of the draft that Michael Peach told me I had to abandon. It's called four, three, two, one. And he takes a guy and gives him four different lives and he puts it all together. And I, I've been so, I love Paul Auster, I really do. I've been so angry about it. I haven't been able to read the book because what I wanted to say to Michael Peach, which I didn't, because you just don't want to burn bridges like that, is to say, you created an audience for David Foster Wallace. You could have created one for me if you wanted to. David Foster Wallace is not the most user-friendly writer in a thousand page novel. And then you chose to publish a posthumous novel of someone who hung himself, which doesn't mean he shouldn't be read, but I mean, what are you putting into the world and saying, sorry, you just don't have an audience because you're not interested in the lives of young women. That's basically what it is. I think that the American Dirt controversy, which full disclosure, I haven't read the book, maybe it's quite amazing, but I think the American Dirt controversy did actually bring up a lot of these issues in terms of who's getting to tell the stories, whose stories are, you know, being kind of shoved down our throats as like the book that you have to read for your book club, right? Um, and and so, 
conversations have been productive. I don't know. Yeah. Sorry, like I actually have, so I have a really close friend who is from McAllen, Texas, which if you don't know is like, basically like you spit in yeah. you're in Mexico. Yeah, so like, um, and he is, um, he's a writer. I mean, he's never, in, he is a beautiful writer. He hasn't been published yet. Um, and for him, the whole American Dirt conversation was like so infuriating for him because he's 100% Mexican. He's lived his whole life in those communities. He actually like went to Yale as an undergrad um, as like the first person in his family to go to college. And he still has so many more obstacles to getting published than this woman who published American Dirt. And I actually think he probably could work just like a tad harder and get published, but that's a whole different conversation. But for him still like, you know, seeing American Dirt get published when he's from those communities was like the most enraging thing. I even argue, it's not that American Dirt shouldn't have been published. You can publish American Dirt. When American Dirt is getting so much media space, do you know what I mean? Like there should be more room for more than one novel at a time. Yeah. But we're living in a culture in which we're told there's yeah. only one novel at a time. Right. Everybody else is not, you know, so like, Again, it's because I do kind of feel like around those conversations, like good for her for writing. Like I'm never going to tell a woman so, not to. And she my, she but to give platform, I think is where we get. Yeah, I I agree with you to a point about the platform, but I do think there's a conversation around American Dirt, which is that she could have told her story from the perspective of a white woman mm -hmm. interacting with those communities. Yeah, and she chose not to, and that's where I object. Well, she is the white woman in the book. Doesn't she? I'm pretty she sure gets, she gets stranded because of her husband there and gets treated the way immigrants are treated, but she is a white American woman. Although I, I've only read reviews of it. So possible that I'm misunderstanding. Miss Wheeler gave it to me and that's what she told me. She yeah. liked the book. So I wish I, I, I can, can, Oh, sir. Uh, the, the other uh, again, this is not, my question probably isn't going to be as incendiary and exciting as the conversation right now, uh, but I'll have to go soon. So I did want to know um, when in the writing of it, not just in sort of the getting through the marketing of it, um, how for you writing the novel, like I write serially at the moment anyway, everything gets released every month. Um, and so I'm getting like an active audience and also a lot of live readings. So it's a different and I always thought I'd be a novelist in a room for years, and then I would have to imagine the audience. So I'm, I get a lot of surprises that way. Uh, for you writing this, uh, knowing you kind of, that it wanted to be a YA, or, or I guess I'm asking, did you have a concept of the audience or did you want the audience to be as any age, as big as possible, and you kind of wanted to write your own thing? Which side of that pendulum did it fall? Well, I mean, I, I'm going to say that it was both, but really the first part in that I, I think I did have a good sense of not only the audience in terms of what other YA books kind of look like, but also I, I drew heavily on um, conversations with many of my community college students, many of whom are 18 to 21. Some are older though. Like I have one friend, uh, Laura, who I talk about a lot and I've talked about with, talked uh, with about this book quite a bit, who was homeless and who's, who many of the experiences in this book, uh, although they're not based on her, would be very familiar to her. Um, and she and I had many conversations around those issues and around the, the writing of the book. So in terms of kind of just 
imagining her as a reader, for example, was always really helpful to me because I kind of wanted to write the type of book that 16 year old Laura could have used. Um, and it's been very rewarding for her to have, you know, to say like, this is the book I could have used when I was 16. But um, she's a different person than the one I was talking about before. But uh, I think that working with young people and I, I work often, you know, I love all my students, male and female, but I, I have a special fondness for a lot of my women study students who are often women or women identifying and uh, kind of having them in my heart and in my mind as I was writing, I think really informed the kinds of stories I wanted to tell and how I told them. And I think in my acknowledgments, I, I actually thought, thank many of those students by name because they really did uh, kind of, I think, give me a lot of the perspectives I need as an old writing for youngs. You know, it, I have had this great privilege of being around a lot of young people who have, I've been so honored that they've, you know, confided a lot in me and shared a lot with me. So, so that's really kind of how I, I feel uh, envision my audience during the writing process. Thank, thank you. Um, I probably have to run. This has been uh, lovely. Yeah. Lovely Bye, to meet you, Sarah. Jim. Bye, me and Laurel. Bye, guys. I think I think we can uh, wrap up. Wrap up, Laurel, Mia, David. Thank you so much. You guys are amazing. Yeah, no, thank you, Sarah, for joining us. And thank you, everyone, for coming. And thank you, those at home listening to this podcast. And um, it will be posted ASAP. And have a good semester, everyone, because I know lots of people who come and listen are certainly on an academic schedule. So have a good semester. Thank you, Sarah. And everyone, Hi, Sarah. Yeah. Talk soon. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks, everyone. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye.